From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado uses tobacco taxes to help pregnant women quit smoking because... Smoking during pregnancy is such a costly proposal. It can lead to premature births, underweight babies, and health issues that can persist for years. And yet, parenting can make you want to smoke more. Just the whole five minutes of peace and, you know, having something to look forward to. Today is the state's investment in a pricey counseling program paying off. Then, CPR News has a new home, blocks from the state capitol. We wondered what was on this plot of land before us. We were able to find an ad from the Rocky Mountain News, November 17, 1890, that this was the Denver School of French Language. We'll help you unearth your own property's history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Babies exposed to nicotine before birth are more likely to be underweight, premature, and spend their first days in intensive care. These complications cost millions of dollars a year in the healthcare system. The state pays for a program to help women quit. And a new study can tell us if it's working. Epidemiologist Tessa Kroom led this research, and welcome to the program, Tessa. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Also with us, Christine Olszewski and her husband, Paul Vanegas, who both went through the program and they're now smoke-free. They have two kids. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Christine, I understand you started smoking when you were 15. You're in your 20s now. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we said, quit smoking through this program when you were uh, expecting your first child. But you went into this thinking you were going to fail. Is that right? I did. Yes. I was super scared. I was like, I wasn't ready to quit. I enjoyed it too much. What did you enjoy about it? Just the whole five minutes of peace and, you know, having something to look forward to. So it's not just the chemicals. I think it's really important to understand. It's also the ritual around smoking. Definitely. Why did you start? My brother, (laughs) honestly, because he thought it was cool and then... You know, he's like, oh, you're not inhaling it. I'm not going to give you a cigarette if you're not inhaling it. So I started inhaling it because, you know, I wanted to be cool. So Oh, I see. So at first you weren't inhaling and just trying to go through the motions. Right. How quickly do you think you got hooked? Probably like a couple days. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how many years did you smoke in total? I smoked for six years. And a day comes along, you realize you're pregnant, I guess, and, and what? You start thinking about whether you want to continue. Definitely, because I knew I had to quit, like, eventually, you know, and I kept dragging on, dragging on, and then eventually I was like, it's time. You knew you had to quit. How did you know you had to quit? Because I knew it wasn't fair to my unborn child, you know. Who, by the way, is drawing in the corner of our studio. Just want to say, what, what is her name? Mia. Mia. Okay. We'll see what Mia's drawing by the end of the conversation. <laughs> How far into your pregnancy did you finally decide, I'm going to do this? Uh, three months. And three. tell me about those three months and the thought you had. It, sounds it like was a battle. It was a battle in my head because I was like, you know, if I only smoke two cigarettes a day, then it won't be as bad, you know? And then I, so I kept that like two cigarettes a day for... God, it was like probably three weeks before I had actually quit, quit. And so the idea is you're kind of making bargains with yourself mm-hmm. a little bit. Uh-huh. Exactly. Okay, Paul, you were a smoker for 25 years before quitting with Christine. Was it also the baby coming that led you to want to quit? Solidarity with your wife? What was it? Uh, it was a little bit of both. I mean, I know that what she was going to be going through was going to be tough. I've done it 
a hundred times trying to quit and it just it never stuck. I don't think that I really Are had Are you exaggerating reason. when you say 100? or do you No, say- not at all. Wow. <laughs> I would okay. really try, and it would go for a couple of days. There was a point in time that I actually did stop for about a year, uh, and then stuff in life happens, and the easiest thing to do was to go back to this little stick that gave you that comfort, and you know it was always there for you, and you know it, it did. It gave you that five minute peace, like Christina said. But was this a different kind of motivation? This was a hugely different motivation. Not only was I going to be supporting Christina, you know, um, I was also making sure that when my daughter came around, that she wasn't going to have that picture of me. That's oh. one thing that really is. I mean, if you have mom quit smoking, but dad goes out every few hours, where's dad going? Then he comes back smelling bad. It, it gives her mixed signals on what's right and what's wrong. So it had to be for her. And that's really, these two were the reasons for doing it. Right. Of course, there's the concern around smoking uh, if you're pregnant, if you're around someone who's pregnant. But then there's also the environment you're creating at home once the child is born. Is that a smoke-free home? Is it not? Okay. So Tessa, there's a lot of focus I know on avoiding drinking while pregnant, on how the opioid epidemic affects expectant mothers. It seems to me that tobacco doesn't get as much attention, but help us understand why this is so important to public health, will you? So I think tobacco doesn't get as much attention as some of the other substances because the new substances are new ideas. Mm. But using tobacco during pregnancy has been a major public health issue for as long as tobacco has existed. And it's certainly the most common substance that's used during pregnancy. The compounds in tobacco are developmental toxicants. They cross the placenta and impact a variety of developing organ systems. Like what? The brain, the lungs, really every every organ system because there's vasoconstriction associated with nicotine. So, so the constriction of veins. Yeah, so it it results in less oxygen and less nutrient flow to the infant, the developing infant. And fascinating that this can affect the infant's lungs. Absolutely. Obviously, the infant is not taking in smoke necessarily, but their, their lungs can be affected. Yeah, so infants exposed to tobacco in utero or during a mother's pregnancy struggle with lung problems for at least the first three years of life. And then they really are at more risk of potential lifelong lung impairment. Is a child exposed to nicotine more likely to want nicotine later in their lives? Yes, absolutely. Oh. Because exposure to nicotine during pregnancy upregulates nicotine receptors in the developing brain. So So your brain wants it. So then the child, when it may be introduced to tobacco in adolescence, Mm. has a predisposition once it's exposed to that product, nicotine, to develop dependency themselves. Okay, so the million-dollar question in this conversation is whether this program the state helps pay for uh, is working to help expectant mothers kick nicotine. Now, Christine and Paul, as we said, had success with it. What have you found when you researched the program, which, by the way, I'll I'll say is called Baby and Me Tobacco Free, funded by the Colorado Department of Public Health. Uh, What'd you find? So we studied over 2,000 women that participated, and we compared them to a population of women in Colorado that smoked during their pregnancy but did not participate in the program. So that's your control group. 
Right. And we found that women that participated in the program, regardless of whether they actually were successful at quitting tobacco during their pregnancy, that they had a 25 to 55 percent reduction in NICU admissions or neonatal intensive care admissions. So their babies were less likely to need that kind of intense help right after birth. Yes, absolutely. And they also had about a 25% reduction in the risk of preterm birth or being born before 37 weeks of gestation. Okay. So they were, uh, what, a quarter less likely to give birth prematurely. And their babies were, what would you say, significantly less likely to be in neonatal intensive care? Between a quarter and a 50% less likely to be admitted to neonatal intensive care. That's a big deal, huh? Absolutely. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, there is a a program that the state of Colorado helps pay for that encourages women who are pregnant to kick the smoking habit. And there's new research indicating that it has had pretty big success. We're talking to uh, the researcher behind that data and a couple that kicked smoking. Now, the, the program is an interesting mix. It's counseling, and then it's these incentives, diaper vouchers. You know, diapers get expensive. It, what was the motivation, do you think, for you besides your own desire to kick nicotine? Like, was there something in the program that was particularly helpful? The mentoring the lady at WIC, her name's Valerie, and she just like. Wh- WIC is Women, Infants, and Children. Right. Yeah. She just made it. I don't know. She made it fun for us. She like her encouragement made us want to keep coming back. You know? Wait, you fun? You can't yes. kicking cigarettes can't possibly be fun. <laughs> give me an example of what that looked like. Well, she, okay, so she would always have like gum and stuff to give us, you know, and I mean that was because it's, nice. it's an oral fixation, right? Yeah. So she would give us tools and stuff to use. Did you get free diapers out of this deal? Yes, we did. Okay, that's helpful. Yes. Mia is a furiously. Scribbling. So now it looks a bit like, uh, what would you say? A bird's nest, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, what, what helped you, do you think, in this program kick the habit? Yeah, I think, uh, like Christina said, it was uh, the mentoring that we had. Uh, we would have competitions when they test us. I think it was a CO2 test, and you blew into this apparatus, and you had to be within a certain level. Otherwise, they knew that you had smoked. Oh, well, we always see, tried to see who could blow the lower number. Was there, was there a friendly competition with you and your wife, in other words? Yes, yes. <laughs> it wasn't really friendly <laughs> because we both like to win, but uh, I didn't win very often. But it was, you know, it was fun. Um, and the diapers was a huge thing. I mean, we didn't have to pay for diapers for, geez, almost the first year of Mia's life. Like I said, they made it a lot of fun and we had some uh, laughs along the way. All right. What are the potential savings in healthcare here? We found that per person, there was a $2,000 to $6,000 cost savings. Because it's annually. expensive to have a premature child. It's expensive to go into NICU, but annually, and meaning the savings continue? How, how so? So each year that this program has been implemented, it's been associated with this two dollars to $6,000 individual cost savings. And if we look at the total cost savings to the state of Colorado, which pays for the intervention, it's between one and $4.1 million per year. There's obviously a cost to the program, but you're saying the savings is a larger benefit. Uh, It's much larger. The program does have a high per person cost, which is thought to be necessary to 
have a successful cessation attempt. I mean, I guess that's probably because you have counseling involved. That's not cheap. Yeah, it includes the administration of the program, the incentives. Uh, This program is implemented in 52 counties across Colorado. So there was training necessary to train all of the nurses and public health personnel that deliver the training Mm. in the community. I guess you're making the argument that it's worth the investment. Absolutely worth the investment because smoking during pregnancy is such a costly proposal. Tessa, how is uh, vaping playing into this? Because we know that's a popular product. For some, it's a way to quit, but for others, it's a sort of gateway to cigarettes. So exposure to vaping during pregnancy results in similar nicotine levels in the infant as exposure to tobacco. And we know that nicotine is a toxicant. So if you think that vaping as a pregnant woman is safer, you're misguided. That's correct. Okay. Are you seeing more addiction? To vaping? Yeah. Yes. So the concerns with vaping is it's a product that the tobacco industry is using to get new customers. And those customers, a lot of them are young. The tobacco industry's best customer is a young person, someone who is more vulnerable to social pressure, is looking for comfort. And the people that get addicted to nicotine early in life are the tobacco industry's best customer. They have an entire lifetime of addiction in front of them. And they may have children coming in their future at some point. Long before they ever became pregnant, their addiction developed. Okay, tough question. How much do you guys want a cigarette right now? And how do you deal with those urges? You know, every once in a while, the thought will come into my head, like, I have a rough day with the kids and... I just want five minutes of peace. Well, I go outside and I get my five minutes of peace, but I just don't smoke. Are the cravings mostly gone? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, For sure. It's all mental now. It's like, you know, it's just thoughts. Paul? No, I get cravings. I still want cigarettes. It was that that first light of a cigarette, the way that the cigarette smelled when, when somebody else does it. Now, most of the time, I don't like the smell of it, except for that first puff. It's always, that was what always got me. And that was the hardest part because I was always around it. Um, and what, but, so when you get the cravings now, what do you tell yourself? I just know that the flavor, the taste is not going to be there. The health is, not, it's not worth it. It's just not. Plus she'll know <laughs> if I smoke and then I get in trouble. <laughs> I want to thank you all for being with us. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tessa Krohn is an epidemiologist at the Colorado School of Public Health. Christine Olszewski and Paul Vinegas are parents who quit smoking through the Baby and Me tobacco-free program. A study suggests it has led to significant savings in health care costs. We're broadcasting from the site of Denver's first vertical motel, That's how paperwork we dug up at the public library describes it. You see, CPR has moved its newsroom from the south suburbs to Capitol Hill. And we wondered, before the building we're in was here, what was on this block? Well, Denver's first vertical motel, among other things. More on what we unearthed and what you can learn about your own plot of land in a moment. But first, why did we move to 80203? 
accountability, according to the head of news, Kevin Dale. He says, look who else is in and around this zip code. Tens of thousands of state employees and state lawmakers. The judicial branch is here. Some of Colorado's most beloved institutions, the art museum, the theater district, are here. And now CPR News is here as well. Here, 17th Avenue and Grant Street, a 12-story office building that in 1981, the Denver Post architecture critic called striking. It will be finished in red marble imported from Verona, Italy, he wrote. Fancy. So what came before this building and how far back can you trace a piece of property, maybe your own? I mean, we can get back to 1863 assessor records. That's pretty close to Denver's founding. Yeah, so Denver was founded in 1858. This is Katie Rudolph, archivist at the Denver Public Library. She scoured the Western History Collection for us. Well, looking at the 1887 Robinson Atlas, um, we can see that there are just a few houses on this block. There's one here on the corner a brick building, and then there are some uh, wood frame houses along 17th. All right, so we know that there were structures there going way, way back. Do we know what was in them? We didn't have a building permit for that brick house on the corner, but we were able to find an ad from the Rocky Mountain News, November 17, 1890, that this was the Denver School of French Language. Okay, this is really cool because I went to a French school as a kid. No way. (laughs) Is this your school? This is not my school. I think it predates me a little, Katie. (laughs) Other properties that were on that piece of land were some wooden frame houses and we did a search in the Denver city directories by address. Oh, so you can look up by address, not by name necessarily, if you don't know who was there. Right. We have an Ancestry Library edition on all DPL computers, and you can actually search Denver city directories by address in those. So we were able to find Daniel Letcher living at... 325 17th Avenue. What does it say about him? It says Letcher, Daniel, colored laborer. His race? Yeah, which is, you know, pretty shocking. I'm just looking at this page. Other names listed. John A. Lessig, a pipeman for a steam engine company. E.L. Lester, printer. So this gave you some sense of who they were, perhaps what they did for a living. Yeah. And, you know, these will also mention sometimes, like, if someone had passed away in the year prior. Even if someone is widowed. Correct. Now, you mentioned earlier there wasn't a building permit for some of the early structures. What could a building permit have told us? Building permits will tell you who the contractor was, who was the first owner, how much the structure was believed to cost. And if there's an architect. But there aren't always building permits. I wonder if it was just a bit of the wild, wild west. That could very well be. Katie Rudolph, again archivist at the Denver Public Library, has a word of caution. Searching your current address may only get you so far. As I said, our new offices are on 17th Avenue, but... 
There was a major change in the downtown street numbering in 1887 and then another major change in street names for the entire city in 1904. So today's 17th Avenue was at one time Brown Street, named for Henry Cordes Brown of um, Brown Palace fame. And then um, today's Logan Street was once Kansas Street. So this adds a layer of complication. If you're going back on your address, don't assume that the street name or number were always the same. That is correct, yes. We're standing next to these giant drawers, and not far away from us are some huge, almost Harry (laughs) Potter-like books. Is this what you've been consulting? Yes. So those Harry Potter-like books are the Sanborn Fire Insurance Atlases. Those will actually show the footprint of buildings on a piece of property. Shall we pull one out? Yes, let's do it. I may need your help. They're a little heavy. I'm happy to oblige, Katie. I mean, this makes any coffee table book you've ever seen look small. This is the size of a coffee table, really. Katie, it looks to me like these are handmade, cut out, pasted onto the page. Yeah, someone would do this by hand. As these buildings changed, they would literally draw out a new shape of a building, cut it out, paste it over the old structure. Before the digital age, kids. Okay, what are these colors? Pink is going to be brick frame which was important here in Denver after the Great Fire of 1863. And what's the yellow? There's not a lot of it. It's usually on the front of these brick buildings. Is, is that wood? Are those porches? You're exactly correct that that is a wood porch. These give a lot of detail about a particular structure. They do. I mean, it's the number of stories, uh, where windows and doors are located. You know, it might even list what the building is used for or who owned it. Yeah, so here's a police station, district number two, doctor's offices. Here's an undertaker. How easy would it be for me to get a photograph of, say, my house, my building, or what came before it? It's not the easiest. (laughs) We certainly do not have photographs for every structure in Denver, but You know, we can certainly try searching. We have a digital collection online. Um, You can put in an address. You could put in a street name. You could put in maybe the name of the first owner and search that way. You know, that's probably what people are searching for the most, that and plans. And um, we don't have plans for every structure. Well, let's move further on in time. We know about the French school. We know about this Mr. Letcher who... I'm just going to think about now when I go into the newsroom, this laborer of color. What else was on this site? Okay, so the French school eventually becomes the Mayflower Hotel. Next door to it, we have a drive-in hotel. A drive-in hotel? Yes. Not a motel, a drive-in hotel. One of the headlines is city's first vertical motel planned as addition to the Mayflower Hotel, and that's... January of 1956. It's a swanky idea to have a hotel built around the automobile. Oh yes, it's very modern, very chic, I'm sure.
Years later, you find the article for the building that CPR occupies today. How'd you find this? So this was in the Denver Post, September 3rd, 1981. The headline is Building Planned at 17th and Grant. The building will have glass curtain walls and special glazing to minimize solar heat gain. The top two floors will be served by a private shuttle elevator. Oh, I'm going to go try to ride that elevator. Yeah, a shuttle elevator. Very private. (laughs) Thanks, Katie. This has been so fun. Thanks for having me. Katie Rudolph, archivist at the Denver Public Library. At CPR.org, we have tips for researching your own property. And you can read about our new building's connection to Playboy Bunnies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwill, president of Colorado Public Radio. Everything we are today is a result of community support. You've helped create one of the largest public service institutions in our state, locally owned and committed to producing news that's important to Colorado. This is why your end-of-year gift is so important. When you donate today, you'll fuel ambitious plans to grow this vital service in 2020 and beyond. It's easy to do at CPR.org, and thank you. Today is the deadline for nearly 200 high-level federal employees to tell the Bureau of Land Management if they're willing to leave Washington, D.C. for various posts across the West. That includes Grand Junction, soon to be the BLM's new headquarters. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg takes a look at why this move has become increasingly controversial. When the push to bring the BLM's head office to Grand Junction really started to heat up about a year ago, It was presented as hopeful, maybe even a little whimsical. Definitely not a political divider. Hello, Mr. Secretary. We're here to make the case that Grand Junction is the best place to headquarter the BLM. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett smiles alongside Republican Senator Cory Gardner in an ad addressed to Interior Secretary David Bernhardt. The pair extols Mesa County's vast public lands and front row seat to the Colorado River. It all comes together here in Grand Junction, Colorado. There's been talk of moving the BLM out of D.C. for decades. But until now, it was only that. Talk. I think it's nonsense. Bob Moore worked for the BLM for 40 years and was the state director for Colorado before he retired. He's part of the Public Lands Foundation, made up of current and former BLM employees, which opposes the move. It gives me the impression that somebody's out to dismantle BLM. Multiple news outlets have reported that few career staff will move. And Moore says that will lead to a brain drain at a time when the agency has heightened its focus on oil and gas production. The fewer BLM employees they have in Washington, the simpler it is for the political appointees in the department to make those kinds of decisions. In Grand Junction, though, where more than two dozen top-level BLM employees will soon be living, many local leaders want to keep politics out of it. It's disappointing that it's become such a partisan issue and that it's being used as a tool for each of the sides to beat each other up over when it never started out that way. Robin Brown, head of Grand Junction Economic Partnership, has been part of the push to get the BLM to her small city since the Obama administration. And we had the support of Governor Hickenlooper, and now we have the support of Governor Polis. Both Democrats. But as this has gone from a pipe dream to an impending reality... 
Outside of Colorado, more and more prominent Democrats have questioned it, while more and more Republicans have championed it. When the BLM leased office space in the same Grand Junction building as oil and gas companies, opponents of the move cried foul. But Brown says they're missing the point. Because we want the BLM employees and the BLM directors and the people making land policy decisions to know our oil and gas companies. We also want them to know our ranchers, and we want them to know our mountain bikers, and we want them to know all of the users of the land and to understand how we all operate. Strolling down Main Street in Grand Junction, it's hard to find anyone who isn't excited about the new headquarters. Brooke Meekham just moved here from Tennessee and hadn't even heard about the relocation. Until just now. And Meekham, who used to work for the Forest Service, thinks it's awesome. If you're in D.C., you're in the hot spot of like legislation and everything that's going on, so it makes sense to have people there that are public lands advocates. Um, but I think it's hard to be a public land advocate if you're not on the public land. Mark Hasso, visiting from nearby Monticello, Utah, agrees. He says his neighbors, mostly ranchers, don't feel the BLM understands them. And it causes a lot of aggravation when they f- people feel that they're not being listened to. Getting more BLM folks out here could change that, Hasso thinks. He used to work for a different federal agency in D.C. It's a great place to be, and there's great views, great food, great coffee. But getting down here is where the action is. It's down on This is the root level. This is where it needs to happen. But Sarah McCarthy, with the environmental group Conservation Colorado, looks at the sleek office building that will soon house the BLM's new national headquarters and questions what exactly will happen when the BLM moves here. And it sure does look like a political ruse to me. A political ruse because McCarthy doesn't trust the men behind the move. President Trump's appointees at the Interior Department. All of these actors who have time and time again fought for the extraction of oil and gas, for development on public lands, and not for protection of public lands. Still, as a Grand Junction native, she understands why so many locals welcome the move. And she's hopeful that the BLM top brass who will be based here will make the most of their new home. Let the people come to you, you know. If you're going to be here on the ground, be on the ground, not just hold up in a, an office. An office nearly 2,000 miles from the nation's capital. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Voters may decide if the gray wolf should be reintroduced to Colorado. Supporters of an initiative to bring the wolf back to the western part of the state turned in petitions this week to get the measure on next year's ballot. This development got us thinking about a legendary wolf that became a symbol of the debate. The story is told in the book American Wolf, a true story of survival and obsession in the West by journalist Nate Blakesley. It's set in Yellowstone National Park and raises questions about what could happen in Colorado. I spoke with Nate in January of last year. The book is very much a biography of 06, a wolf living in Yellowstone. She's named for the year she was born. Describe her for us. Well, she was uh, an unusually attractive wolf. She had the uh, gray coloration, which is pretty common in Yellowstone, attractive facial markings. She was larger than usual for a female. She was about 105 pounds, uh, a very powerful hunter, unusually adept at taking down elk, which is their main prey in Yellowstone, uh, by herself. And that's sort of how she first got came to the attention of this small subculture of, of wolf-watching aficionados in the park. But really the reason she became famous is that she was the easiest wolf to spot in the park at a time when social media was just exploding. And so 
more casual visitors to the park, just tourists would happen to be in the right place, right time. They would see her. They would take some pictures of video, post it online, and her legend just sort of grew. Mm. And she was an alpha, right? Right. That means that she was the breeding female in the pack. Every pack is basically a family. You have the breeding male and female, known as the alpha male and female. Um, and so she, the visitors were there and sort of saw this amazing adventure story that was her life uh, sort of from the very beginning. And it was a great story. She, she left her natal pack, as all wolves have to do, in order to, to form a, a pack of their own and find a territory of their own. Um, and she embarked on this extended territorial battle with this other alpha female who controlled this sort of the most desirable land in the park known as the Lamar Valley. And and watchers were there observing as she sort of outwitted, outwitted and then later outfought this alpha female of this other pack. And all of this sort of took place um, in this wide open, relatively treeless valley where wolf watching has become this really popular pastime. And her story really was not that unusual. What was unusual about it was how thoroughly documented it was. This small group of watchers that would come to the park every day, follow the wolves using their radio tracking collars, and then watch them, and in some cases take notes all day. And that's what allowed me to, to write the book as I did, a sort of nonfiction book that reads like a novel in which many of the main characters are wolves. Indeed, it's not that the wolves keep the diary, it's that so many diaries are kept about them, and that gives you real insight into their days. Why don't we have you read a passage from the book that gives us a glimpse into Osix pack? Uh, including two male wolves known by their ID numbers as well. Okay, yeah, this, this is a, a scene in which she has established her first litter, and the den happened to be perfectly visible from the campground road. And as you mentioned, the other two wolves you'll hear mentioned are her mate, 755, and his brother, 754. Situated high on the mountainside, the den had a clear view of the flats of Slough Creek far below, as well as the Lamar River where it exited Lamar Canyon and beyond a long arm of Specimen Ridge. One morning, as the pups were playing on a fallen log, and 754 and 755 were bedded nearby, 06 walked to the center of the bowl and sat in a field of luxurious grass, surveying the mountainside that dropped away below her. Suddenly she threw her muzzle into the air and howled. The two males roused themselves and trotted to her side to join in. The pups scampered over, confused and startled, looking everywhere for the danger that had prompted their mother to sound this alarm. But there was no danger. There was just warm sunshine and soft grass and the bounty of an enormous territory that belonged only to them. They tilted their tiny heads back and added their voices to the chorus. It's so interesting to have a main character who's not human that you can't actually communicate with. Does that make her to some extent unattainable, uh, maybe easier to to side with or fall in love with? <laughs> well, it was certainly challenging as a journalist to, to try to make her a character in a story, and that's partly what was so exciting to me about this story. Um, the reason it was possible was very early on in the reporting, um, a woman, a retired school teacher named Lori Lyman, who lives near the park and comes almost every day and takes notes every day, gave me this treasure trove of material 2,400 pages, three years worth of daily observations of 06 and her pack. And I, and I read through it and I saw the outlines of this amazing adventure story. Um, and it was possible, I hadn't realized this uh, at the time, but it was possible to get to know individual wolves, to get to know their personalities, their habits, you know, their, their strengths and weaknesses, uh, and to have them actually be characters with whom you can identify and, and sympathize uh, in the story. And by the way, not every wolf in the story is sympathetic. You know, some of them have personalities that you don't sympathize with. Mm. 
Well, some background here. Wild wolves were systematically exterminated and pretty much gone from the lower 48 by the 1920s. And in the mid-1990s, wildlife managers brought wild wolves from Canada and then reintroduced them into Yellowstone. 06 was a descendant of those wolves. Uh, And indeed, you write that this was an amazing opportunity for wildlife researchers to observe wolf behavior. Among them is Rick McIntyre, who also keeps very fastidious field notes. And what did you learn about the day in the life of a wolf? Because these notes give you a sense of, of her kills, her fights for territory. Is it an interesting day? Is it a busy day? <laughs> well, if you're lucky, it is. You know, wolves, like your dogs, will tend to spend most of the day sleeping. And so the watcher's strategy is to get out there right before dawn when the wolves are still active and then watch them as much as they can until the wolves sort of bed down and then watch them again in the evening when they become more active. But when they are awake, wolves spend most of their time running. That is sort of the defining characteristic of wolves. It's what makes them such stunning animals, such amazing predators, is their stamina. They will routinely run 20 miles in a day. You you watch them through these spotting scopes, these powerful telescopes. You never actually get that close to the wolves, but you can see them really well through these scopes. And it looks like they're just trotting. And then you look up and you see the size of the landscape that they're moving across. Routinely move 20 miles in a day. They can run 40 miles in a day if they need to. They spend most of that time either checking the boundaries of their territory. Every part of Yellowstone is held by one pack or another and they're fiercely territorial. Or sort of taking inventory of the various herds of elk, which is their main prey in the park. And they will kill usually an elk every three or four days. And that was something that had rarely been witnessed before reintroduction into Yellowstone. Um, But now it's something that's seen on a regular basis. And if you're lucky enough uh, as a visitor, you might see it yourself. I want to be very clear that you do not write this book purely from the uh, perspective of those who love and adore the wolves. Um, and, And we'll get to the debate over wolves and their reintroduction in just a bit. But I, ha- I have the sense that wolf advocates are really trying to paint the animal as not the big, ba- big bag wolf, even though they engage in some pretty bad behavior, as you document in the book. Right. Well, I think that you mentioned Rick McIntyre. He's sort of he works for the Park Service. He's sort of the wolf guru there. He's the one that helps visitors find wolves and tells them what they're seeing. He's this amazing font of wolf folklore in the park. And I think what he feels like he's working against is hundreds or actually thousands of years of sort of misinformation about wolves. Wolves have been so thoroughly demonized for so long, um, essentially as long as people have tried to raise livestock because wolves were the main obstacle to all these early sort of pastoral civilizations that began to raise sheep, goat, uh, and cattle. Wolves were once the most widely distributed land mammal on the planet, found almost everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, wow. And today, Homo sapiens is that most widely distributed animal, and it's no coincidence. Everywhere that human civilization has flourished, wolves have sort of been pushed to the margins. And as you mentioned earlier, in North America, almost entirely eliminated. They were once found all the way from the Arctic Circle down to Mexico City. Uh, By the late 19th century, you could find them pretty much only up in uh, the northern part of Michigan, upper Wisconsin, upper Minnesota. Everywhere else, they have been wiped out by fur trappers or by uh, cattle ranchers protecting livestock. I want to say that um, 
my words, bad behavior there uh, <laughs> are probably out of line. A wolf behaves as a wolf behaves. It's it's up to the outside folks to to judge whether it's bad or good behavior. Not not up to me by any means. What effect, Nate? Uh, did the reintroduction of wolves have on Yellowstone's ecosystem? This is an important question for Coloradans because it's possible that there might be a, a reintroduction program here. The reason wolves had to be brought back to Yellowstone is that the ecosystem was essentially broken. Even though Yellowstone is the crown jewel of, of the national park system in the United States, uh, it was not a healthy ecosystem. Wolves had been gone. By the time they were brought back in the mid-90s, they had been gone for about 70 years. And the result was just this explosion in the elk population um, because there was no longer any predator around to keep them in check. And the habitat began to degrade. And park rangers saw this as early as the 1940s. And what they were forced to do uh, was to cull the elk population. They would round up thousands of them, usually in the winter when there were a few visitors around, and, and shoot them, basically replacing wolves with rifles. And the idea that bringing wolves back would be sort of a more holistic solution to that problem had been around for decades. But it was controversial, and they didn't get it done until the mid-90s. Now, when they did finally get it done, it was an enormous success. Wolves spread throughout the park and then beyond the park's borders throughout much of their former range in the northern Rockies. And the effect you saw on the park was exactly as predicted. The elk population came down. And more importantly, elk started behaving more like wild animals. They stopped congregating in these river valleys where they were overbrowsing on willow and aspen and damaging the trout streams. And when the willow came back, you had food for the beavers who came back, which of course improves the riparian ecology. And then some more unexpected changes happened too. There were far too many coyotes in the park because they had no canine competition. And when the wolves came back, the coyote population plummeted. And one of the things they saw as a result was a rebound in the pronghorn population because coyotes were eating a lot of baby pronghorns. Likewise, the rodent population bounced back without the coyotes. And so you saw all these more food for raptors like hawks and eagles. And there was this avian renaissance in the park that no one had anticipated or even knew they were missing. And so this cascade, biologists call it a trophic cascade of events, uh, has been uh, of positive effects from wolf reintroduction, uh, has been so thoroughly well documented now 20 years on that it's considered one of the great wildlife success stories of the 20th century. Trophic, re related to food and the food chain. Um, right. Talk about the position, though, of the hunting community and ranchers. Because as you say, this had effects beyond the park. Right. Well, I mentioned it was controversial. The reason it was, as you, you put your finger on it there, the ranchers, the descendants of those same ranchers who had hunted wolves out of the northern Rockies, they're all still there, all still running cattle and sheep, in some cases on public land. They knew they stood to lose stock to wolves if wolves were brought back, and so they were very much opposed and then secondly, the elk hunting uh, industry, it's big business in the Northern Rockies, um, not just for guides and, and outfitters, but also for hotels and restaurants that cater to out-of-town hunters. People will come from all around the country to hunt those elk. And they hunt that, that Yellowstone elk herd, not while it's in the park, of course, but elk are migratory. And in the winter, they'll come down out of those high mountain ranges in the park into the valleys around and provide outstanding hunting. And those that community knew that they would suffer if wolves came back because there would be fewer elk. Did they suffer? Well, in some places, yes. The elk population came down as predicted. Of course, that was one of the goals of reintroduction. But if you didn't share that policy goal, you weren't likely to celebrate its success. And in, in some of those valleys immediately adjacent to the park, there are fewer elk and as a result, fewer outfitters. Now, on a statewide basis, 
The elk harvest, as they call it, the number that are shot by hunters every year in, in, for example, Wyoming, has been very robust. It has been near record levels in recent years. So the elk are still there. They're just not necessarily found in some of the same places they traditionally were. Have people lost money? Have they lost businesses? Some outfitters have and some ranchers have. But you have to keep the impact on ranching in perspective. For Wyoming, for example, uh, last year they lost 230 elk and sheep to wolves. Now there's over a million elk and sheep, uh, I'm sorry, um, cattle and sheep in, in the state of Wyoming. And just to put that number 230 in perspective, tens of thousands are lost every year to bad weather, to diseases. Um, now, if all of those calves had been lost on one ranch, obviously that would be a significant impact. But the state of Wyoming has a compensation program. Ranchers are compensated seven times the value of any lost uh, calf or sheep if they can document that it came from wolves. So I think as uh, now 20 years on, I think ranchers are starting to learn to, to coexist with wolves, although in the hunting community, there's still a good deal of resentment. Well, speaking of the hunting community, we have to talk about Stephen Turnbull, who is another captivating character in your book. Uh, not all the characters have, have four legs. Um, tell us about Stephen Turnbull and how he fits into the picture. Well, the other story that the book tells, this sort of parallel narrative to 06's sort of life story and struggle, is this fight over how wolves ought to be managed in the West. And it went on uh, for 20 years, and it did culminate finally in wolves being taken off the endangered species list and their management being returned to the various states around Yellowstone, all of which eventually instituted hunting seasons for wolves. And during that very first hunting season in Wyoming, in generations, one of the very first wolves killed, sadly, was 06. She, like all the packs in the park, she briefly led her pack out of the park just for a short time. It's a common thing, although they, do, they spend most of their time in the park. And on one of those excursions, happened to be during hunting season, and she was shot east of the park in this area known as Crandall. Now, nobody knew the identity of the hunter. He shot her in one of the most remote places in the lower 48. And by the next day, 24 hours later, it was in the New York Times, and then it was around the world. You know, world's most famous wolf shot near Yellowstone. Um, and for him, it was this unbelievably surreal experience to read about what he had done. Um, but by the time I caught up with him, which was about a year after this incident, he had changed his mind and he was ready to talk. Um, all he asked from me is that I protect his privacy by, by agreeing on a, a pseudonym, which we did, Stephen Turnbull, and that his story be, be treated with respect and that he come across as sort of a, a three-dimensional character who had a perspective of his own. And that was important to me. I wouldn't want to tell the story, you know, without having the perspective of someone who thought reintroduction was a bad idea. How did Stephen Turnbull, again, this is uh, a changed name, how did he feel about having killed such a famous animal? Well, when I f first found him, and we talked in his cabin for about an hour, he was extremely defensive. He kept saying over and over again, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. And, and from a legal perspective, he was right. Now, whether he had done something morally questionable, I think even he was a little bit on the fence about um, and that's what made it such an interesting interview, and that's what made him such an interesting character. He's not an anti-wolf ideologue. He doesn't believe that all wolves should be removed from the landscape. But he does very much resent the fact that there are far fewer elk in Crandall where he lives than there used to be, or that his dad or granddad were used to. You know, From his perspective, there weren't too many elk. There were just the right amount. And he is someone who really has built his life around hunting elk. 
It's what he does. He's like I said in the book, he's like a ski bum with a rifle instead of a snowboard. Um, and so for him, you know, this was, it was almost sacred to him. And in his own way, he is as obsessed with wildlife as someone like Rick McIntyre is in the park. And that's what made him such an interesting character. And I, I was so grateful that he agreed to participate in the book, even though he knew, of course, that he would be the bad guy. What do Colorado and other Western states, um, what, do they have a dog in this fight, so to speak? Well, Colorado is is the next sort of likely place to attempt a similar reintroduction effort. Wolves, of course, were once found all throughout Colorado as they were all throughout North America. They were all extirpated by the end of the 19th century, just the same as they were up further north. Um, you have this huge expanse of, of public land in the western part of the state, which, of course, you would need if you were going to try this sort of landscape-scale reintroduction. And you have an overabundance of elk and deer, so you have this sort of motive, the rationale for reintroducing. Now, whether or not you're going to have that same sort of political fight that we saw in the northern Rockies... I guess, remains to be seen. Having reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone, I wonder if the animals have become too accustomed to people or cars and if that affects them when they leave the park or, I suppose, when they're in the park. Yeah, well, I think that's a fair question. I, they, there, It's certainly the case that wolves that live in the Lamar Valley, which is that most popular area for wolf watching, have become tolerant of people. Now, that doesn't mean they, they approach people. They don't. But they view people, say, a quarter, half mile away as a, not a threat. And so when they leave the park, and this is the behavior that Turnbull described to me the day that he shot 06, they are very naive about people and about hunting. Um, and so the question arises, is it fair chase, which is to say, is it ethical to hunt a wolf that's tolerant of people? Um, I think a lot of people would say no. Now the question becomes, what is the policy solution to that? Do you do you create a buffer around the park during which no hunting in, is allowed? And that would be a very controversial uh uh, measure for congressmen, Western congressmen. Um, and that's something I don't think we've quite come to terms with uh, from a policy perspective. Journalist Nate Blakesley speaking with me last year about his book, American Wolf. The Yellowstone Ranger he mentioned, Rick McIntyre, retired in 2018, but continues his daily study of wolves in the park. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.